Welcome to this week's podcast. My guest on Facing the Canon is Emma Heath with a transforming recovery story. Emma Heath, welcome to Facing the Canon. Thank you. Good it, to be here. All right, it's good to have you here. Well, let's start with your journey of life. Where were you born? I was born in Burton-on-Trent many years ago, 42 years ago. And where did you grow up? I moved to Somerset quite early on in sort of my life and I lived there until I went to university in Wales. Um, so that's when I moved to Wales where my family are from. At school, you started to battle with anorexia. How old were you when that happened? I recall it being about the age of 11 I started to restrict my food and it I went through the whole spectrum of eating disorders over a period of many years and anorexia, bulimia, overeating, exercise came into it um, but at the age of 13 I found alcohol which was um, a huge problem throughout my life. So it, be it began with social drinking but it then escalated and you kept drinking. How? Tell us more. Yeah, um, I, I was always the person that would drink a little excessively, uh, but I just thought that was my character. That I, I was, I've always been a bit all or nothing, and I embrace that today, but at the time I didn't understand it. And with the eating disorders and not eating much, but then drinking on top, it, it affected me quite a lot, and I'd get drunk very quickly. And people then saw me as the sort of, one of the sort of life and souls of the party type person. And drinking, became a regular occurrence to the point I didn't realise how much it had impacted my life. And even looking back, and hindsight's a wonderful thing, but I, I remember when I got the opportunity to go to university and I got offered all these different degrees and I basically, they offered me hospitality management as one of the options and I said to them I didn't know what it meant what I didn't even know what hospitality management was and I said well what does that entail and they said the clinching words to me they said there's wine tasting on a Friday and I signed up to a four-year degree based on that decision but I didn't know I had a problem with drink at the time it was just a part of my life that was fun and then you graduated you ended up in Turkey running nightclubs how did you end up in Turkey Put it this way, I've made some really bad life choices along the way. Um, I actually went on holiday to Turkey and then ended up um, meeting a load of people out there. They, they said, well, we've got this opportunity to run a nightclub. And I, in my crazy little head, I was like, yeah, I could do that. And um, three years later, I'd been involved with running nightclubs. I saw a very dark side to um, things out there, the way that women were treated and, and the sort of the corrupt nature, not all, but just in the resort I was in. And, um, but it fueled my drinking to the point where I was drinking every day and it became the norm. And I didn't realize that I'd become physically dependent on drink until one day when I came back to Britain. And I remember being on a plane and I hadn't had alcohol for a little while and I could feel that the physical symptoms of not drinking begin. You know, it got to the point where vodka, neat vodka was my first drink in the morning and the last drink at night. And, you know, I'd be in this flat in, in Swansea in Wales and the only people I'd see was the Tesco delivery man who would bring my drink or my mum would come just to check I was alive. That's how 
how dark it got. And I remember there were times she'd peer through the, the letterbox in my flat and see me passed out. And I'd given up. I'd given up. I was just, you know, not really functioning at all. So how do you get up from that kind of situation when you hit rock bottom? I think for me, I needed to hit that rock bottom where the only way was up. Um, and I, I reached out. I was incredibly blessed by the pharmaceutical society who um, supported my mother and they helped me to get into a rehab uh, 15 years ago um, and a beautiful place in Wiltshire. And that's where the journey really began for me because I, I knew I needed it. I didn't know if I really wanted it, but they helped me in there to realise how much I wanted my life back. And then what was the process of recovery? How, how does it work? Yeah, well, the, this rehab, I'm, and this is where God worked for me because it was a 12-step rehab and the 12 steps originate from Alcoholics Anonymous, yes. which originate from a group of Christian people. So when they were talking about a higher power, for me, it was like those little light bulb moments were coming on. And I was like, even though I feel so distant from God, I know who my higher power is. Um, so that was yeah, the most- Yeah, so you had a name for the higher power, yeah, Jesus. Yeah, and I remember the first night after um, my detox had finished, and um, it was quite funny, actually. When I got into the rehab, I it was a beautiful, like I said, a country house. They had cows and everything in the field. It was, you know, idyllic. But when you're there turning up and you're trying to like detox from alcohol, it, it's not a nice place. But after the, the detox wore off, I, um, I remember that very first night of clarity when I was laying in my bed and I, was, I started praying for the first time in years. And I felt like Jesus just saying, I'm here with you. What is, what's the one thing you want out of life? And, and I said to him in that prayer, I said, help me get through this. I get emotional because it means so much, but he, I said, help me get through this and help me to help others in the future. And he's been so faithful in that. And then at that moment when you echoed, prayed that prayer, did you sense something? Oh gosh, yeah. I, I felt like I wasn't on my own anymore. Um, even though I've had so much support from people, I felt that inner, inner peace, like those broken pieces starting to just come together again. And that for me was, that obviously putting down the alcohol was amazing, but that for me was where the real gold began. Because you, you can't, you know, you can't put a cost on having God in your life. So your, your kind of restart with the Lord was, in the words of Jesus to Nicodemus, uh, being born again. Yeah. You felt that experience yeah. of being born again. Yeah, I've never really said it in that way, but you're, you're totally true you know, in that because it was, and it was gentle. And that's what I love about him. It wasn't that massive light bulb moment. It was a real gentle because that's what I needed. So then you do the 12 steps. Yeah. What, what happens after that? Um, I then moved to London. I, I basically, I'm quite defiant and I still can be. So if someone tells me not to do something, I'll almost do the opposite. And there's something in the 12 steps that says about asking God to remove all your defects of character. I actually believe that some of my defects of character can be my real assets as well. Yes. So that determination, that all or nothing, and that, that go after things with all my heart, I still keep, but channel it in a better way. So when everybody was saying that they were going to what they called secondary treatment, um, which is like a, a dry house after your initial, you know, intense treatment, 
I was like, I want that. I want that and I'm going to get it. Um, and I ended up moving to a, a women's only treatment centre in London. And it was beautiful. You know, it was, a, it was a hard journey because I had to do a lot of looking at why I did what I did. Because ultimately drinking alcohol excessively was the symptom of such deep rooted inner pain. Um, so for me, I did a lot of work on myself and, um, you know, in London, I started going to 12 step fellowships, helping other people, um, started working and doing all the things that a productive member of society should do. Found a church and gave back in that. Um, but yeah. Yeah. And then obviously your life was transformed. And it was, and I'd love to say I never drank again, but that's not my story. I no. ended up sort of drinking once more nearly 10 years ago. And what, what triggered off that? I mean, you've gone through this program, you've gone through this recovery, yep. it's all good. So what triggered this relapse? I'd been through a really difficult point in my life where I had um, the very early stages of cancer when I was several years um, free of alcohol. And I, I didn't cope with that. I, I don't think anyone can cope with it amazingly. But for me, I put on this brave face that I was fine. But inside, I was like crying. You know, I'd go out and I'd go to meetings and I'd help people and I'd talk the talk. But I'd come home to a very, it brought back that feeling of emptiness and loneliness around something. Um, and I just wasn't addressing it very well. And it got to the point where um, I ended up going to Brazil, building a school with the Bobby Moore Fund. That's sort of the way I thought I'd cope. I'm a very practical person. Um, and I just fundraised for cancer research, ended up there, put myself in quite a dangerous situation where nobody knew I was in recovery. Um, everybody was drinking and, and it just wasn't the best place for me. No, you were in the wrong environment. Yeah, and, and I ended up picking up a drink and I don't blame any of that. That's the thing, I don't blame that because ultimately I had the choice to pick up that drink. But I'd let down a lot of my defences and a lot of the things that actually worked for me in recovery. So I wasn't around people that understood. I wasn't sure. practicing the program of recovery. Yeah, you knew better. Yes. But sometimes we ignore what we know, don't we? Oh yeah. Because it's obvious when you look back now, why would you put yourself in a vulnerable situation? <laughs> <laughs> but obviously you did. And what happened? Was the setback quite bad? It wasn't too bad at first. I, I kind of um, went round a bit of Brazil um, Copacabana Beach and just having the odd shandy and different things and it, it didn't seem too bad but it was when I got home that it escalated very quickly um, and then I ended up in a place where I went, The oh, this is the irony, I was running a church fair um, for the church I was involved in in London and I had already started on this drinking spell and not that it's anybody's fault, but someone came up and gave me a raffle prize of a bottle of vodka. Yeah. I was then later found that day in the back um, pew of that church, completely smashed to bits. Having, I had my leg in a cast because I'd broken my leg already um, through my this, this relapse. Um, I was just in a mess, and you know my poor, poor vicar at the time, Ollie. Um, he's just been such a rock for me um, throughout, but. It was a mess, you know, and I embarrassed myself, but ultimately I know I'm forgiven for that. I know. So how did you then move forward? 
Um, I asked for help again and um, I, I reached out. I went back to that same treatment centre that I mentioned and they took me back and welcomed me back. But the shame of going back again was intense because I felt like such a failure. And I went back in there and, and this time, you know, I really felt like I gave it my all. Yes. I didn't hold back. I wasn't just sort of cherry picking which bits of the recovery program I'd do. I just was like, I'm broken. Um, I want this so much and I gave it my all. Um, and yeah, it was the start of a really beautiful journey for me. And how long ago was that? Um, I mean, that's going back. I'll be um, free of alcohol coming up to 10 years now. 10 years. Yeah. Yeah. So 15 years of recovery, but yeah, 10 years, 10 years ago. And uh, as you said earlier on, when you were flying back from Turkey um, and you just had that encounter with the Lord, yeah. uh, you had a sense that you would be well, but you'd help other people. So how did the Lord lead you into helping other people? Oh my gosh, um, I, when I was, um, he, keep, he kept showing up to me like really tangibly and giving me encouragement along the way so that I started believing in myself because the thing with addiction and destructive habits is that it rips away parts of you that make you doubt the person that you are or could be um, to the point where I didn't believe in myself, you know, I, and I... When I first got into recovery, I couldn't be in a room with more than two people out of fear of anxiety. Um, and I would literally, you know, I'd, I'd be a broken, anxious mess. And he often turns that mess into, I believe, our messages today. And and basically, I, I kind of just did what was suggested by people that have walked the journey before. Um, but for me, that's when my faith started growing. So I had the connection. Um, with a, a loving church and people around in the Christian faith. But I also had the connection with people in recovery, and I think that's really important. But I also saw that there was something missing. Why weren't the two coming together? Um, and I remember a gentleman called Nigel Scalsey came into our church um, back um, many, well, probably about eight, nine years ago. Um, and he started talking about this thing called the recovery course. It was a Christian, um, you know, recovery course, which I love. And, and the two just came together. It was like, for me, I describe it like a cross-shaped hole that needed filling. And for me, that was a very gentle um, encounter with the Lord over the years. And, and I started running the recovery course after having several years in recovery. I think it's really wise to not just jump into things when you're a baby in recovery because otherwise you know it can you can fall flat on your face and and it is an important time to just focus on yourself and your journey and growing in the relationship with God but also you know not being too heavily involved and and um, after several years I like I said I got involved with the recovery course I was involved with my church I was back working little bits volunteering as well um, and um, you know I when I drank again, I got put onto a, a drug and alcohol rehabilitation program in, in Bournemouth. Um, and I, I did all that. I did everything I was told to do. I'd even ended up on probation from drink driving, but I, it got to the point where because of everything I was doing so well and giving my all in pro the probation scene, you know, I even got my driving license back early, which is unheard of, you know, and that was a beautiful story where I got asked by my probation officer to go up in front of the chief of Dorset police and the magistrate court and actually explain where I was at in my journey. And I remember having, I had to you know, swear on the Bible. That was really odd, you know, um, 
And they, they said to me, I remember the judge um, looked at me, and they were so stern looking the whole time. And he said, do you ever think you'll drink again? And it's a really hard question to ask somebody like myself where drink had become my life. And I, I looked at him straight in the face and said, in all honesty, if I keep doing what I'm doing, I keep God at the centre and be around good people, I genuinely believe I'll never have to drink again. And the beautiful thing was they went away and deliberated and then they came back and, and their, their faces had changed. And these are the beautiful amends that I, I see happen. And, and they smiled at me and gave me my licence back early. And, <laughs> You know, and it was it was just beautiful, and it wasn't even about getting your license back early. It was about being able to just be everything that I was meant to be. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So the Lord gave you lots of uh, encouragements along the journey. Yeah, yeah. Now you've birthed a ministry now. It's called Star. How did you come up with that name first of all? Um, it's called STAR, which stands to Steps to Active Recovery. We were going to call it Steps to Addiction Recovery, but we want to call it Active Recovery because for me um, and the team that I work with, it's about actually getting to a point where we do something. We don't just talk about recovery. Um, and ultimately, the STAR is what led people to Jesus. So throughout the charity, we want to be leading people to Jesus and helping them to find recovery. And and basically, I, they were, I from about... I've been working with churches for about eight years now, setting up courses and working on a national level with churches around addiction. And I haven't met one church that doesn't want to help people in recovery, but they just don't know how to. And often the well-wishing kind of Christian world we're in can actually be quite counterproductive and almost damaging if you don't know what to do. So what we want to do is really sort of backtrack with teams of people that um, want to help in addiction and actually give them sort of upskill them in confidence in their knowledge and, and collaboration. So we're working in partnership with churches and communities so that they actually can then meet this recognised standard. So if you walked into a star approved church anywhere, you would know that that meets a criteria that is you know, safe and welcoming and people have been trained and equipped to do addiction work within that setting. And in that, we offer courses. We've written a, a Star Life course, which is all about helping people to actually, you know, go on a journey and, and address that pain that I talked about earlier that is the deep-rooted part of what causes people to act out. Yes. Now, when, Emma, when we talk about addictions, of course, we're not just talking about alcohol addiction. So highlight for us some of the other addictions. Sure. Um, I always say like addictions, compulsive behaviours, destructive habits, because for some people, even saying the word addiction is too much for them. It's, yeah. you know, so to make it more palatable, we talk about, um, you know, it's so across the board, especially through the pandemic and what we've been through. It's brought everything up to the up to the surface. Um, you look at food addiction, gambling, pornography, social media through the pandemic, my um my post lady became one of my best friends just because I was doing so much online shopping. But for some people, that's problematic. You know, I, I remember when I went to see the recovery course running many years ago in HTV and I got put in a little group of women watching, you know, a bit like this around a table. Um, and there were all ladies my age, apart from one little old woman. And I thought she must be someone's grandmother, literally just coming along to support someone. And we went round and for identification, everyone was saying what their, you know, what had brought them there. Um, so most of the ladies said they were addicted to crack cocaine, heroin, alcohol. And it got to this little woman and she looked like my former, you know, my grandma. And she just looked at me and she was like, Emma, 
I've got a habit. And I was like, oh, really? You know? Um, and she said, yeah, it's the first thing I do in the morning. The last thing I do at night, I spend all my money on it. She said she'd been married to her husband for 50 years and he was thinking of divorcing her because of it. By this point, I was out of my seat, like, what is it? And she was addicted to cross-stitch. Cross-stitch. Yeah. She woke up in the morning. Thinking about and it. And that was the first thing she had to do. Yeah, but I looked at her, like I'm looking at you now, and the pain in her eyes, you know, John, it was yes. ridiculous because that pain in her eyes was no, dis you know, not different to the pain I went through when I was drinking two litres of vodka a day and wanting to die because it has made her so obsessed about something that took her out of life. You know, I met another guy once who used, he, he brought his wife to a recovery course and um, her issue was alcohol. He said, could he sit at the back and just watch so he could support her, you know? And after a couple of weeks, he came up to me and said, you know, can I join one of the men's groups? I said, well, you have to kind of qualify, you know, what's, what's your issue, you know? Um, and he said, I bite my nails and I thought, a lot of people bite their nails, you know? And he said, no, I really bite my nails. I, he said he was on honeymoon with his wife, um, two newly, you know, wed Christian people. He said it should have been the most beautiful time of his life, but he ended up, all he thought about was when could he go to the toilet and bite his nails because it was such a secret habit, even though you could see it, but he had to do it in private. He said it ruined his time. So these are the things that we see. It's, it's, it, it's anything that takes you out of living life to the full. Emma, we're, we're talking about church communities yeah. where there are a lot of issues underlying, but many of us don't feel there's the opportunity or the accessibility to get the help that we need. Hence what you're trying to do with STAR. Exactly. I mean, I, I heard an amazing um, statistic, quite shocking, to be honest, that 80 to 90 percent of people have a habit, destructive behaviour or as full blown as an addiction that if they were free of, they would be happier. So actually, that's the majority of people. Um, we, you know, we all have majority of people have things that they need help with. It's about finding places that we can actually open up and talk about this. So that's why STAR comes into communities and helps people. So. In that, um, you know, I, I basically think that it, if people just know a tiny bit more knowledge around addiction, it will, I mean, if you think about the church as a whole uh, volunteer network, it's the largest network in the whole world of volunteers. Yes. If we can upskill everybody just a little bit around this issue, it will help so much, you know, so many people and change a culture of how we address addiction. And I often use the story of you only need to know a little bit of something in order to save someone's life. You know, when I was six weeks sober, I had um, the opportunity um, to do CPR on my mum. And I only knew a tiny bit of first aid. Um, but in that, it gave me the confidence to step in in an hour or minute that was so needed. You know, we'd been away um, in Iceland and um, Iceland, the country, not the shop, because somebody said that's a really cheap amends taking your mum <laughs> yes. to a frozen food store. Um, but no, I'd, we'd been away and we'd come back to my home in Bournemouth and literally um, she'd, um, we got up, we were talking, she was about to drive back to Wales and she suddenly just fell down in front of me and she'd had a sudden cardiac arrest. Um, and in that moment, that memory of the little bit of knowledge that I'd learned kicked in. And, and another lady was in the, the shared house with me who'd also done a bit of CPR training. And we basically just got to work on my mum. I was, 
I was doing the chest compressions to the um, Vinnie Jones Staying Alive campaign that was out at the time. Yes. My friend was doing it to Nelly the Elephant and, and basically we, I, I laughed, but it was, it was the most horrific moment of my life seeing my mum, who's my best friend, just fading away. And the paramedics turned up and um, they started shocking her heart. Um, and they tried six times, sort of six or seven times. And in that moment though, this peace just fell in that room. And I know that Jesus was there with us. You know, I could tangibly see an extra person in the room. Um, and when the paramedic with the paddles turned around and looked at me and he just said, I'm so sorry, I knew they were gonna stop. Um, and I, this peace that had fallen, and I only know that's of him. Um, he gave me the words to look him in this guy in the face and just say, please, can you try one more time? And in that moment, there was this connection. And he turned around and he shot mum's heart another time and she came alive. It took, t you know, we rushed down to the hospital and she was in intensive care. But I was, you know what, I was able to be a daughter. I was able to show up and be there. And that is because of having God in my life and being free of addiction. Absolutely. Uh, but I only knew, and I say that story because I only knew a tiny bit of CPR, but it was enough to, to change the whole trajectory of that situation. And that for me is the same with this yes. around addiction. People only need to know a little bit and have the confidence to step in and act. And we can change someone's whole life. You know, that's been my experience. Good people coming alongside me and helping me to be ev everything that God intends. And I, I don't know half of what's going to happen, you know, and I'm so excited to see where, where Star goes and develops. Um, but he's, he's, he's clearly blessing it and we Absolutely. just want to bless other communities with it. What would you say, Emma, to our viewers who are struggling with addictions? What would you say to them? And would you also say a prayer as well? Yeah, of course. There's such shame attached to addiction, but trust me, I hope from hearing a little bit of my story and other people's that there is hope. The biggest thing you can do is to, to actually talk to somebody um, and to break down the fear um, of actually getting real about what's going on for us because ultimately, you know, God can help us and he will help us. And yeah, just speak to somebody. You're not on your own. And trust me, if somebody like me that, that was drinking two litres of vodka a day and just wanting to die can be sitting here today and just, you know, being able to just do life and help other people, there is hope and I believe that for you. So please reach out. There's a Star Life course that you can join in on. Um, we run them nationally online or find a church that runs the recovery course or Star Life courses or contact us and we'll put you in the right direction. Um, but you don't have to be on your own. And that also goes for families and people affected by addiction too. So yeah, let me pray. So Heavenly Father, we just thank you that you know each one of us so well. You know the good, the bad and the ugly and you want to be with us and help us to live the whole life that you intend for us. You know, like Jeremiah, it says that he knows the plans that he has for us and that God's plan is not for us to be bound by any habit, destructive behavior or addiction. He wants life and life to the fullest for us. And in that he can do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine. So my prayer today is that people have the courage to reach out and get the real help and support and love that they deserve and need. And I just pray that in Jesus' name Jesus' today. name. Amen. Amen. Emma, wonderful to have you on Facing the Can. Thank you for joining us. It's been a pleasure.
I hope that has inspired you, uh, a story of redemption, another story of uh, a trophy of God's grace. Well, I hope it's infused in you a sense of expectancy for your own life. Thank you so much for joining us on Facing the Canon. Please join us again. You've been listening to the J. John Podcast. To find out more about J. John's ministry, visit www.canonjjohn.com and follow him on social media. One doctor developed the world's first vaccine. One civil rights activist helped to end racial segregation in the USA. One botanist developed new farming practices supporting impoverished farmers. One former slave escorted 300 others to freedom. One watchmaker saved the lives of 800 Jews and refugees during World War II. One politician persisted to see slavery legally abolished in the UK. Faith, love, generosity, sacrifice, perseverance. Heroes of the Faith, the new coffee table book by J. John. Available now at canonjjohn.com.